Oh, hi. Oops. Hear me? Can I be heard? Okay. Um, my name is, is Fred Luskin, and I'm a, um, a researcher at Stanford's medical school who, for the last five or so years, has been doing research and teaching on forgiveness. And um, I now somehow have been put in a position where I go around and try to tell people that there's scientific evidence to basically be kind to themselves and other people. And it, it's a very remarkable thing that one needs a Stanford PhD and a medical school researcher <laughs> to, for people to even open their ears to the idea that kindness might be a good thing. Um, as strange as that is, it's, it's very true that um, if I'm honest in any way with what I see of the conversations of people that I know, if, if, you, if you look at the news, if, if, you, if you examine your own minds, if you examine your own conversations, are the way most of us hold difficulties is, is with less kindness than we might, we might want, and, and certainly that we might aspire to. And I'm not quite sure where that is, but my understanding of forgiveness is, is that's one of the keys to unlock the kindness in us. That, that too many of us take the things that happen to us, the unkindnesses, the slights, the disappointments, the, the lack of love, the rejections, the unintended hurts, the intended hurts, the just, just all the ways that life manifests itself in ways that we would prefer it not. And too many of us have the habit of reacting to those experiences with some kind of anger or negativity or hurt or outrage or judgment. And unfortunately, when our first reaction is that, that's not unusual nor harmful. But when our tenth reaction to something or our 10th or 20th reaction to the same thing is that way, we create habit patterns. And those habit patterns influence us to react to the next hurt or the memory of hurt in the same way. And those reactions crowd out compassion and those reactions crowd out gentleness and those reactions crowd out our heart's desire to be open and connect. And Unfortunately, too many of us, I don't know whether we've just been taught it or we've been psychologized to do it or, or it's just biological, but we create storylines of how we've been hurt. And we use those storylines to insulate ourselves from life and to protect ourselves from people and to armor our hearts. And without even knowing it, then we come up with these reasons and these stories why we can't be fully loving, centered, together beings. It's my mother's fault. It's my ex-husband's fault. It's the guy who hit me when I was driving fault. It's the neighbor who doesn't honor my fence fault. It's the guy at the supermarket who had 10 extra items. <laughs> it doesn't matter who it is, but there's somebody <coughs> who's at fault and we allow ourselves to have excuses as to why we're not fully open-hearted. And we create these life patterns that way. 
And we live in a world which honors that. You know, we live in a world which is more comfortable with us saying to our closest friends, damn, you wouldn't believe what my ex-husband did, rather than, gee, wouldn't it be lovely if I could find a place of compassion in me just to hold this? And it's unfortunate that we create these patterns and these relationships because, as our research is showing, they rob us of a lot. They rob us of vitality, and they rob us of peace, and they rob us of self-confidence, and they rob us of a certain sense of safety in a world where you're never completely safe. And, and what's so interesting to me is all the reactions that people have to people hurting them and all the reactions that people have to life not working out and all the reactions that we have to our pain are attempted solutions to life's basic problem, which is our vulnerability. You know, the, the most dan not dangerous, the most delicate experience we have is our essential vulnerability. That is, separate human beings, we exist at the whim of something. And we know that we can be spirited off this planet at any moment. We know that everybody we know can be spirited off this planet at any moment. We're aware that people can fall in and out of love with us, that they can withhold affection, that they can decide to be cruel, that things can just not work out, that cars, brakes can fail and they can come smashing into us. We're aware at some very basic level of how tenuous our, our connection is and how, how existentially vulnerable it is to be a human being. And we spend much of our time devising solutions to that vulnerability. Well, one of the solutions that is most tried with some of the least success is a certain negative bitterness towards the events that remind us of how vulnerable we are. So if we're married for 13 years and the wife decides that she got a better offer from someone else, that's a moment where we were reminded of our vulnerability. Every one of those days during that 13 years, the wife could have taken a better offer. Every single moment, every single second, the vulnerability just exists. But when our vulnerability is triggered, we notice the event that triggered it and attach ourselves rather dramatically to that event. And it becomes this event then that has to be managed rather than an acknowledgement of our vulnerability. And so we react to the wife or we react to the parent or we react to the driver. Now, they are agents of our vulnerability, but they're not the essential problem. The essential question, the essential problem is, what does it mean to be a human being who can be hurt at almost any time? And, and whose existence is tenuous? And, and I'm not talking about the deepest spiritual aspects of ourselves, but what it means to be the day-to-day -day person traveling in this life. It's hard. And we don't have control over most of the things that would ensure our safety. And so we struggle. And when something comes that hurts us big, we freeze into it. We, we like lock it in space because this reminded us of our vulnerability in such a way that we don't know what to do about it. And so we, so we try to like hold it in space as if, wow, 
if we never again allow mom to say that to us, well, maybe we'll be safe. Maybe you will. But somebody else might say it. And what I see is that people forget that the question that they're dealing with is how does one hold being a vulnerable human being and not close one's heart? That's the essential question. It's often answered very poorly. It's often answered with bitterness. It's often answered with an over-attachment and over-identification with the specific event that reminded us of how vulnerable we are. And 10, 20 years later, we can still talk about that event. As if, this is the amazing thing, as if 800 million other events haven't occurred. But we still act as if the event in 1973 or 83 or 93 is somehow more important because it reminded us how tiny at some level we are and how helpless and how dependent and how interdependent we actually are. And so I see that as one of the great failed experiments of the human condition, which is if I just get pissed off enough, if I just pay so much attention to the worst things in my life, I'll protect myself. And unfortunately, it does the opposite. It grounds us in it. it. It locks us in it. It holds us there, and it distorts our view. It really distorts our view in a way almost nothing else does. Because even if you have had an awful relationship, that doesn't mean anything more than one person out of billions had an awful relationship. There may be thousands like that. And yet there are equally thousands who had wonderful relationships. It's no evidence of anything. It's just an unfoldment of life. It's just life being life, emerging, taking form, and then disappearing. Another relationship. Another relationship that had form. Another relationship that caused pain. Right next door could be a relationship that emerged and caused great joy. And that too will pass. And right next door could be a relationship that was boring. And you got people living together for 50 years in utter boredom. And it's just another relationship. But because of our vulnerability and because we understand how scared we are, we try desperately to lock into these few things as if, if we just hold them up here and we just revolve around them, somehow they'll lose some of their power. And the interesting thing to me is we don't examine enough the place in us that allows us to handle these kind of life events with more grace and with more openness, which is simply called forgiveness. I understand that painful things happen. Into each life some rain must fall. I understand I'm essentially vulnerable. I don't want to get too carried away to one or two or three of the events that remind me of my vulnerability. I don't want to lose my connection. It doesn't mean that what happened to me from my point of view was okay. It wasn't okay. But from the larger experience of life, it's simply life unfolding. Everything is simply life unfolding. Everything. I do work with all sorts of people who have all sorts of hurts, 
And after five years, it has been astonishing to me to see how many ways human beings can be unkind to each other. It's, I, I'm sure I don't haven't even touched the surface of it. The human being is remarkably adept at selfishness, at cruelty, at unkindness, and is also remarkably adept at love and devotion and loyalty and patience and, and sheer goodness. And none of it captures it. The mystery is so large and the unfoldment so enormous and, and the manifestation so varied that we need to find a way to still be open to it. And that is what forgiveness is. It allows us to still be open to it. That even though part of it unfolded and hurt me, and even though part of it caught me unawares, and even though I would have really preferred that that woman or man stay my friend or treat me differently or not have hit me with his car, here I am. And what do I do today so that the past doesn't dominate it? It's called forgiveness. It's simply what it's called. I release my bitterness. I release my negativity. I release my exaggerated blame to them for causing me to have awareness of the way certain parts of life always were. Always. Nothing is new. You know, I go around and I hear the same stories. I hear the exact same stories with tiny, tiny, tiny little variations. And I hear so many people who will tell that same story as if they are the absolute first person it ever happened to. And I'm sitting here listening to, in my mind, dog bites man. And there's no news. You know, it's like the TV has been on CNN for 24,000 years and nobody's ever changed the headlines. It's just the same thing. People lie. People cheat. People steal. People cruel. People are unkind. And people, all of us, have not been taught to look at what is one of the solutions to that. Well, we have come up with a few simple solutions that help people forgive. And the first and the easiest is to understand that we have been given very limited power over other people and over life's unfoldment outside of our immediate sphere. We have been given limited power over that. That we have been given limited power to stop people if they intend to hurt us. We have been given limited power over stopping the universe from manifesting itself in a certain way. We have been given limited but some power, but limited. But what we have been given more power than we tap into is to notice our blessings, is to pay careful attention to life's unfoldment when it's warm, when it's loving, when it's kind. We've been given almost unlimited power to appreciate the people who are kind to us and close to us. There's no end to that power. We have been given almost unlimited power to kiss the feet of the people who actually can tolerate us. <laughs> no, it's, no, because you know, you live in a world where people often don't like you but we don't tap even close into our power to pay homage to the people who do because we don't forgive. Because we're too, our radar is too locked in to what we didn't get, 
to who wasn't kind to us, to why didn't mom love me? Why did she favor my brother? Why did that guy in seventh grade not give me an A? Whatever it is. Why didn't they, why didn't life unfold the way I wanted it to? But <coughs> what we forget, we have this almost unlimited power to appreciate and to show gratitude for and to even go out of our way to offer forgiveness to the people in our immediate orbit who try, who care, who stay around, who pay attention. I can tell you that when I've been hurt, I have an almost incredible ability to block out kindness. You know, when someone does something wrong to me, my radar hooks in on that, and I've seen that with so many people, and all the goodness is just kicked away. It's like you're a, you've got a football and you're trying to punt it away because you want to stay focused on what the world didn't give you. Well, our understanding is we have limited control over other people's unkindness, but enormous control over our levels of appreciation and almost unlimited control of who we become as a response to unkindness. And unfortunately, too many of us don't ask that question. Too many of us don't ask after having explored how mom treated you, how the ex-wife or husband treated you, how the neighbor treated you. What might be the optimal response for me in a world of unlimited hurt? How could I help? How could I be an agent of kindness, of healing, of support in this world? How can I use what happened to me to be of help? That simple question brings so much. And we have an unlimited ability to ask that kind of question. We can always go deeper with that question. We can always tap places in ourselves with that question. How can I help? What can I do? Unfortunately, we spend so much time, and I have listened to so many people, 13 years after something has happened, they're still telling me, and you'll, if you, you hear me, you'll notice that other people say that borderline personality disorder is a reasonably rare psychiatric disorder, okay? But it's a severe form of dissociation or limited ability to form relationships. You can't imagine how many people I've been told have borderline personality disorder because the other person talking to me has been hurt by them. <laughs> and so they have to give them this awful label. Or they're selfish or they're narcissistic. That's another one I get all the time. My ex-husband's narcissistic. Now, he's living very comfortably with another woman, but, you know, it's like... <laughs> We ask the wrong questions. What can we do to become stronger as a response to life? Who can we help? What is it that we can show this planet of all vulnerable people as to how to cope with this stuff? That's another approach is what can I become? A first approach is what can I appreciate? And a third approach is, how can I practice the language of forgiveness? Because we become what we practice. It's that simple. We become what we practice. If we practice reacting negatively when people hurt us, then we become negative. If we practice acting hurt, we become hurt. 
If we practice blaming the past, we become disempowered. If we practice telling our loved ones, and this is the most lethal thing that lack of forgiveness does, and it's so insidious, because in some level or another, so many of us are telling the people close to us, I'm damaged goods. I didn't get the love I needed from mom or dad. I had an awful past relationship. So don't expect me to really love you. Don't hold me 100% accountable as an adult. And don't risk your heart because I don't want to really be held accountable for what I'm saying now. But what I want you to do is not really hold me accountable. I want to use this as an excuse to kind of slip away. And then we become perpetrators of little levels of violence, of all the people who crave our attention, of the people who crave our love, of the people who crave us sitting still so that they can hurt, so that they can be present, so that they can have someone there. But we too often announce, this is too hot for me. It reminds me of dad. Or this is too close to home. Instead of, which is nothing wrong with saying that once or twice or five times, instead of, gosh, I really better forgive this stuff so I can become present. I really better let this stuff go because look who I'm hurting. I'm not hurting dad anymore. I'm not hurting mom. I'm not hurting my neighbor. I'm not hurting the guy who abused me. I'm hurting the one or two people sitting right in front of me who need me like nobody else does. And those are the people I'm hurting. Those are the people for whom I am the most personal, the most intimate, the most desired, and this is what I'm holding back from. And we all do this, not all of us, but too many of us do this. Don't expect me because of my past. And that just sets into action a chain. Now, an alternative response is to practice the language of forgiveness, to practice it. Instead of holding on to the past and saying, don't expect too much of me, practice that language. Practice asking for forgiveness. Practice offering forgiveness. Practice when you're clearer, you know, I'm really sorry. I know how much that must hurt, having me disappear because of my own wound. I'm sorry. Can you forgive me? And can I speak the language of forgiveness regularly so that dad or mom or ex-lover or ex-partner don't always intrude, don't always come between me and you? Because me and you are what we got. We got today. We got a few people who really matter. That's what we got. And if we bring all these other things with us, it's so much harder. And it's going to be hard even if nobody else is there. One, one of the things I saw, which always used to amaze me as a marriage counselor, was how no matter how good the relationship was between a couple, there were always major things that they disagreed with. Right? You could love somebody to death, and, and their parents had the kind of home where everything was talked about, but the partner had the kind of home where nothing was talked about. And these people mean well, but there's this. So you're going to have natural conflict that has to be worked out. And you're going to have disagreements and you're going to have differences in every relationship. And you need to manage those. What you don't want to bring is, in addition, unresolved stuff that you're bitter about. And you don't want to bring the past so that you say, 
I'm not fully here. That's what you don't want to do. You can be fully here and markedly different than the person that you're in relationship with. But you want to be there. You don't want to be back in 1970. And you don't want to be back in 1980. You don't want to be back in 1990. There's a, there's a wonderful philosopher who, when I was developing some of this stuff, I was looking at as to how forgiveness was framed in the strongest way that I could see that also fit in with, with my spiritual experiences, but I wanted it to be a, a secular training. Like I, I, I have had a 20-year meditation practice, but I teach a secular approach to forgiveness. And there's a philosopher named Hannah Arendt who wrote at the end of um, the Second World War up through the 70s, and she was an escapee from German concentration camps. And in, in the 50s and 60s, she's, her entire philosophical interest was A, how could people be so evil? How is that possible? And B, what do I and we do about living in a world where that kind of evil is not just possible, but happened to me? How does one live? And she wrote her strongest works about 15 years after she was liberated. And, and her thinking was this, and it, and it fits so much into Buddhism, but her thinking was, we only have the present. That it's 1958 when she would write, when she wrote this book, we only have 1958. I was desperately and brutally mistreated from 1941 to 1944. There's no getting away from that, and there's no minimizing the brutality and evil that I saw. But this is 1958, and the world has this in it. But how do I live in 1958? And, and she works through her own experience to come up with the fact that all human beings need a healthy dose of two things, forgiveness and hope. Forgiveness so that 1944 doesn't intrude too much in 1958, and hope so that her sense of fear from 1944, if she's afraid that it's going to come back in 1961, she doesn't have to feel so terrified of it. And that because life is hard and because there is evil, we have to develop those qualities in us called forgiveness and hope. She focused more on forgiveness. I focus more on forgiveness. But it's an essential question of how do we stay somewhat present in our life. It's, it's one of them is called forgiveness. Now, one of the other things I'll, I'll, I'll talk about, because I only have a few more minutes, is what I have now understood forgiveness to be is much simpler than I thought it was five years ago when I started. Forgiveness, I now understand, is making peace with the word no. Now, too many of us are still at the terrible twos stage when it comes to the word no. <laughs> But every single hurt, every single disappointment, every single expression of anything that triggers resentment or outrage or hurt is the word no. No, you didn't get the parents you wanted. No, you didn't get the lover to stay with you for 47 years, 14, you know, 14 days and three hours. They only stayed for 33 years. No, you didn't get the person you wanted to give you a fair business deal to do so. No, you didn't get the neighbor to honor your property lines. 
No, you didn't get 101 to be without traffic. No, you didn't get the weather in San Diego to be clear when you went down there for vacation. It all boils down, all of it, can funnel it all. How do you deal with the word no and make peace? How do you deal with not getting what you want or getting what you didn't want? And I understand now that that is what forgiveness answers. How do you deal with not getting what you want and remaining peaceful? Now, that's a very, very simplified approach, <coughs> but it allows forgiveness to be seen as a crucial life skill, not as something esoteric. It's not out there. It's not related just if you were raped or abused. It's not related just if you had children murdered. It's related to all of life. How do you make peace with no? How do you make peace with anything that's different than you wanted? Anything. How do you make peace with this moment that it's different than you wanted? The temperature may be too warm in here. That the people may cough too much. It doesn't matter. How do you make peace with not getting what you want? That's called forgiveness. You forgive them. Doesn't mean you can't be assertive. I mean, I, I've had so many people say, well, if I forgive them, does that mean I become a doormat? And, and, and somebody today, I was giving a talk somewhere, said, well, you know, if I forgive them, they'll just come in and do it again. And I said, well, you have to understand, you always have to take care of your life. I mean, you can't use forgiveness as an excuse for being stupid. <laughs> You're just stupid. You don't need the forgiveness. You have to take care of your life. You have to set certain boundaries. You have to learn life skills. But you have to do it with negativity, resentment, or rage. Or do you do the best you can? And I have seen now when I present forgiveness as a way of making peace with the word no, or as a way of making peace with not getting what you wanted, or as simply a way of making peace with disappointment. It allows people to reduce some of that fascination with their storyline. Because the storyline really isn't as important as people think it is. Mostly people are wondering why did they do it? The answer is simple. They're either selfish or stupid or indifferent. There's, there's, you, don't, you don't need like a PhD to figure out that people are often fall in one of those three categories. But people stay fixed on their story. Each of us examines it in minute detail. The question is, what kind of qualities do you want to develop? How do you make peace with no? How do you make peace with not getting what you want? How do you make peace when the world is different in any way than you wanted it to be? And it's a constant question. It's a relentless question. How do you make peace with aging? How do you make peace with the death of parents? These are, these are life's most difficult questions. But the answer for full satisfaction has to involve some degree of forgiveness. Has to. I forgive the source. I forgive the, the manifestation. I forgive the implementation of life. Now, what we have done is Working at Stanford, I have done now seven research projects on a forgiveness method. I developed a forgiveness training. I've researched it now on seven projects. And we have shown, along with other researchers, that when you learn to forgive, it doesn't mean you have to forgive everything. When you have access to the part of you that can speak the language of forgiveness, 
alongside of the language of resentment, alongside of the language of hurt, alongside of the language of despair, alongside of the language of confusion. You just want it to be there so that when you need it, you can select it. But, but if it's not fully there, then your choices are not rich enough to satisfy your heart. So when we help people to put this on their map, their physical well-being improves, their emotional well-being improves, and their relationships improve. It's not a miracle cure. There is no miracle cure. The other thing I can tell you is that we have experimented with this forgiveness process from as trivial as a hurt to my brother voted for the wrong person for president, <laughs> which somebody told me that they didn't speak to that brother or sister for 20 years because of that, <laughs> which right now is still at the top of my stupidest things I've ever heard. Um, <laughs> One of the things I do with forgiveness trainings is look for the stupidest things I've ever heard for, for not forgiving. All the way we have worked with mothers who have had their children murdered. And we have brought parents in to Stanford to get a week of forgiveness training who have had children murdered. And it works in all these things. Not exactly the same. No guarantees. But everybody needs this place in them. Everybody. We are not fully human until we have it. That's all it is. It's latent. It's just, it's just a latent place in us of responding to know with grace, with charity, with compassion, with <laughs> kindness. It doesn't mean it has to be the only way we respond. But if we don't have access to that place, we suffer more. Because inside of us, when we're searching for answers to our vulnerability, we need to have that as an answer. We need to know that we have access to the place that can fully forgive and then choose whether or not to go there at this moment. But if we haven't tried it enough to have access, if our heart isn't open enough, then we are the poorer and our choices are too narrow to fully satisfy us. And we suffer more than is necessary. Now, this doesn't make the pain of murder go away. It doesn't make it okay for terrible things to happen. But for each of us, if we're not filled, if we can't touch that place, we're incomplete. And as all we try to do is give people access to a part of themselves that's already there, they just haven't voiced enough. That's all. So go home. Talk forgiveness. Think forgiveness. Practice forgiveness. Just put it on your menu. You just want to know it's there to examine the next time you react with negativity to anything. Is this a moment to choose forgiveness? And choosing forgiveness only means you're choosing a vibration inside of yourself. You're choosing to tune into a channel inside of yourself that talks that language. It has nothing to do with anybody else, nothing to do with the events outside of you. Just you're tuning into that language. That's all it is. And by having access to that place, you will find improvements in physical mental health. Because our existential fear needs this place as one of its solutions, or we operate out of more fear than is healthy for us. That is what I have seen. That this is not the cure-all, but if it's not there, we suffer more. Now, just as a, a little commercial announcement, I, I just wrote a book. <laughs> about this process, and it's called Forgive for Good. 
So if any of you are interested in finding out more about this, the book is for sale everywhere. Um, <laughs> it is. It just came out in January and is selling very nicely. But I thank you for your time. I can take one or two questions if anybody wants to ask me any. Um, but it, it's actually very delightful when I was sitting here to be, to be uh, in front of over 100 people meditating. Um, more of the classes I teach are with pretty pissed off people. <laughs> <laughs> I teach forgiveness classes, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. It, it seems in Silicon Valley that your, your message is that people should have forgiveness software on their computer desktop. Yes, that's it. That's exactly what it is. You don't want it to be the operating system, but it's got to be there. <laughs> that was my question. Um, um, How is the dialogue with the psychoanalytic I don't have a dialogue with the psychoanalytic community. I have a, I, I'm not sure I'm on their radar. Um, my approach is very behavioral and cognitive and, and meditatively based. Um, I guess that's the core of my question, that there's so many different softwares on the logical menu, and they haven't forgiven each other. Right. <laughs> Great metaphor. Um, the inroad that my publishing company is using, which is useful, is there's very, very, very few theories in psychology that have any research behind them. Very few. Um, myself and one other person have done enough research on forgiveness, per se, that I will tell you there's no one way to forgive. Mine is not the only way. But the necessity of forgiveness has been proven. I can tell you that there's one absolute method that's better than another, but that's no reason not to go there. Do you see what I'm saying? If you have, if you... This isn't on the psychoanalytic agenda, at least it's not on... Right. And, it, it, it's, it's, and it's often too missing in psychology per se. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing. In the field of psychology, they looked at how many articles were published during the 90s on negative human experience versus the number published on positive human experience. So they found that for every article there was on forgiveness or love or compassion or joy, there were 17 on negative human traits. Okay? So there were 17 on anger and despair and depression and anxiety. We're training people to forgive. We're not necessarily training people to be less of anything else. We're just looking to, to unlock the place in themselves that's already there. So it's not meant to have an argument with anybody else. That's really true. I really try not to have an argument with anybody else's theory. Yeah. Um, could you repeat the question? I'm just going to tell you, I, I do everything in my power not to get into a discussion of a specific religious experience's understanding of it. My guess is that the human being who's experiencing it is experiencing the same thing. Different people may language it. What we do is try to teach a secular approach based on psychological principles and trying to push people behaviorally to do more. So what my, the kind of exercise that I would suggest is people 
find some person that they love desperately already and go home and think of one thing that they haven't fully forgiven them for that's trivial and go out of their way to give them a big hug and forgive them for it to practice getting to that place in themselves. That's the kind of injunction that I would use as opposed to a more philosophical one. Okay, so that's, yeah. Mentioned self-forgiveness, which is an interesting topic. Yes. <laughs> they have a couple of words on that because I think there's a lot of unselfforgiving people in the world, which leads to a lot of other unforgiveness. There was a book in, in the 70s called I'm Okay, You're Okay. <laughs> and I think that book, the central thesis of that book, maps out that question better than anything else I've ever seen because I'll be doing trainings and there'll be quarter of the people whose interest is in self-forgiveness, three-quarters or more are interested in what the bastards did to them. And, and usually in language less pleasant than that. But what I'm okay, you're okay said is that when we're very young, we create a picture and a stance towards life. And it's one of four choices. One is I'm okay and you're okay, which is a relatively sane, healthy, pretty much non-resentment generating person. But it doesn't mean that they don't suffer, but it, it's, it's smoothed out. On the alternative to that is I'm not okay, you're not okay. And that's somebody who likes nothing, okay? Most people fall into the other quadrants, which is I'm okay and you're not okay. So I'm wary and on guard and I project out my difficulties. Or you're okay and I'm not okay which is I bring in, project in the difficulties. The people who project in the difficulties appear to have a more difficult time forgiving themselves. The people who project out the stuff appear to have a more difficult time forgiving other people. That exists way before I ever see anybody. And it seems to be a certain life stance. Now, having now practiced this method for a number of years, I have seen that it can be used very effectively for self-forgiveness. But let me tell you one thing that I suggest to people who have <laughs> self-forgiveness issues to try even before they get at forgiveness, because again, I'm very behavior-oriented. Do something different and, and, and make that difference be towards kindness. So I will suggest to people who have self-forgiveness issues two things. Have you stopped doing what it is you're not forgiving yourself about? Like, <laughs> like, like the forgiveness is not the question here. Have you stopped? Are you not doing it any longer? That's the more important question. Don't worry about forgiving yourself until you stop and put all your efforts towards stopping. And I mean that sincerely, which means, you know, some of the 12-step the programs would have people write out checks for $1,000 to organizations that the person hated. Then if they took another drink, the friend would mail it off to the John Birch Society. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> As an impediment, maybe, to... If you're serious about stopping something, you can stop. Not, not entirely, but more so than you think. So I suggest to people, the first thing is, have you stopped? Sometimes people say no, and they say, well, then that's what you got to do. Don't worry about forgiveness. Stop first. Then we'll worry about the consequences of it. If they've stopped, I ask them, how much amends have you made? How much kindness have you sown as a response to any unkindness? If you're upset because you didn't raise your kids properly, 
Are you taking in foster children? Are you going to schools and volunteering your time? Are you calling up your children? When they'll say to me, well, my children won't talk to me. They'll say, okay. So find children who will. <laughs> I mean, the world is filled with suffering people. But they will stay locked into their nonsense just because they can't get their children to talk to them. So if you really want forgiveness, make amends. Make the world a better place. Do something positive. Help. Heal. A lot of people don't like that advice, but if you do those things, if you stop your behavior and you act kindly, forgiveness starts to percolate. Okay, so that, that's, that's my answer to you. Um, I'll take one more question. It's about 10 after 9. So if anybody else has one. Yeah. I didn't. Okay. You know, I thank you all very much for your attention. I appreciate your audience and thank you.